we welcome you to You Ask For It on uh, once a week or so. Justin and I, usually together, he's off at the convention this week, uh, take up either your questions or subjects we think might be interesting. We've been walking through the Apostles' Creed, and tonight we come to one of the most controversial phrases in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. In fact, I've entitled this podcast, What is the Holy Catholic Church? But before we get into things like that, let me help you think through the fact that in this creed, which talks about the fact that there's a father who created everything, he sent his son who was born of a virgin and died and rose again, coming back. Great doctrines. Here you have, in the midst of all that, the early Christians were taught to say, I believe in the church. It was unthinkable that somebody would be a Christian and not plug into a church. It was so important for people to be in the church from the very beginning. Now, I'm going to share with you that I'm a latecomer and a reluctant convert to the church. I grew up in Macon, Georgia. Um, the church that we were a member of, we did not realize it there was because it seemed to be a decent church, but it was a very liberal church. In fact... Uh, when I went to Bible school, they taught me evolution in Bible school. And, and so that gives you a little clue of where they stood as far as where the Bible, believing in the Bible. My parents began to sense that this was a church that did not stay by the Bible. So they went to the largest church in town and how all the appearances of being a strong Bible-believing church but it was also a church that was filled with prejudice. Now, we went there in around 1970 or so. Uh, that was at the height of the racial tensions in the South. And we did not know when we joined it, they had actually voted to never allow a black person through the doors of the church. The deacons were instructed to forbid them from coming inside the door of the church. When I went to Sunday school as a teenager, the first thing that happened every week was uh, jokes were told that, that black folks were the, were the brunt of. So here I've gone from a liberal church to a supposedly conservative church that's full of prejudice. I'll tell you one interesting story. I was already on fire for the Lord by the time we changed to that church and trying to share my faith as often as I could. Uh, my parents, my, my dad, I've got his genes. We always got there way early. Well, there was a drugstore open across the street from where we would go to Sunday school. So I would go over there and buy a Coca-Cola and drink it before I went in when everybody else arrived. So I was standing outside the drugstore drinking my Coca-Cola and there's a bus stop there and a young black man came up to catch the bus. And so I just walked up to him, began to pull out the four spiritual laws, began to share the gospel with him. And my Sunday school teacher drove by and saw me witnessing to a young black man. So when I got to class, he said, I want you to know God convicted me when I saw you do that. God showed me how wrong I am with all of this joking and with all of this prejudice. Can I tell you how that story went? Uh, he got on the bus before I got to the point where you're asking him to receive Christ. Years later, I came back to Macon and a camp, the Campus Crusade leader had been transferred. He said, I've got four young black men that I want you to disciple. So I went and met with them in a living room, and I said, tell me your testimonies. And Andrew said, well, the first time I heard the gospel, I was standing out in front of the big white church. That was his words, the big white church. And this white guy came up and shared with me, and then he went, it was you. 
I went from there to my first church that I served. I was called to be an, a youth minister and associate pastor. And there were good things that happened in that church. The revival broke out among the youth. And then the parents of the youth came and said, we want what our kids have. But it was also a very entrenched church. It was the doctors and lawyers type church that, uh, in fact, I actually went to the deacons and said, I want to ask you to remove one of my youth Sunday school teachers because she is using her kids for babysitting and coming home drunk on Saturday night. And I don't think that's the kind of teacher we need to have. And the deacons looked at me and said, son, you've got to learn to compromise if you're going to make it as a Baptist. Well, you can imagine how that soured my taste on church. So I really went off to seminary wondering, should I just get trained and stay parachurch? I found life through Campus Crusade. And was the church even worth my effort? And then we were called to a little country church out in Oklahoma. We were seven miles from the nearest gas station, 13 miles from the nearest little town of 2000. It was an open country church. It had nothing to offer, but it had loving, praying people. And in that church, God showed me what church could be. And that became my North Star ever since. That the church is not about programs. The church is not about buildings. My soul, every building that was there when I was there was torn down not long after that because they were falling apart. But, it, but the church is about the people and being scandalous in grace and loving each other and praying. So God restored my faith in the church. So with that introduction, I'm a reluctant convert to the church, although I strongly believe that every Christian needs to be in the church. When the original Christians around 100 AD put this phrase in there, they meant for you to know when you were baptized that you are to believe in the church. So what in the world does it mean when it says, I believe in the holy Catholic church? Now this causes Baptists to have the heebie-jeebies. A lot of Baptists will not say the Apostles' Creed because of this one phrase. They will not stand up and say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, let me, let me explain something. The word Catholic simply means universal or worldwide. When the Creed was written, there was no Roman Catholic Church. That developed through the years. And what we call the Catholic Church, we're really shortening it. The official title of what we refer to as the Catholic Church is actually the Roman Catholic Church, based under the leadership of the pastor of the Church of Rome, the Pope in Rome. So you're not confessing that you believe in the Roman Catholic Church. You're simply saying that the church is worldwide. Anywhere you go in the world, you can most likely find a church. Dave gave a report when he and his wife went to Japan, and they said there's not many Christians there, but there are some. And the churches are small, but there's God's churches there in Japan. Now, the church being worldwide can look differently in different places. Right now, we're hearing that the church is flourishing in Iran. They've been under the control of the repressive uh, Ayatollah and that radical Islam. So the young people basically have adopted a philosophy, anything but Islam. And they're turning to Christ, but they're doing it through house churches underground. Africa has become the Christian continent. If you go south of the Sahara, uh, more people are Christians and becoming Christians. That will be, within just a few years, the largest group of Christians on planet Earth will be in Africa. So one of the things you've got to see is God has His church worldwide, and, and God gives us permission 
to allow every place that the church is to find its own ways to share the gospel and to worship the Lord. I'll give you scriptures behind that. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, Paul talks about the flexibility in how he does his ministry. He said that to the Jews, I become like a Jew to win Jews. If you're going to win Jews, you're not going to have a barbecue pork dinner. Uh, you're not going to have a shrimp bake. You know, there's dietary laws. So, so if you're going to reach Jews, you've got to tailor it for Jews. He said, uh, to those under the law, like one under the law, though I am myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I'm not without God's law, but under the law, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak. In order to win the weak, I have become all things to all people so that I might, may by every possible means save some. That's 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 22. By the way, that particular passage, I've become all things to all men, led me in the 1990s to begin our contemporary service because I realized there's one gospel, but there are different tastes that people have. And if we can reach people who have a different taste in worship or in music and preach the same gospel, then we can reach more people for Christ. And that's exactly what's happening now with our three traditional services that are so majestic with the orchestra and then our growing, thriving, uh, modern service that's in an informal setting. That's allowed in the Bible. The churches don't have to be uniform. In the mid-1980s, I went on my first mission trip to Scotland. It was a group of about 120 Baptists that went over there to work in a lot of Baptist churches. They, they grouped us in regions that were closer to each other. They sent us all over Scotland. But in the regions, they had a Baptist representative. We were there for two weeks. We were supposed to meet in the middle to just check and see how things were going. I had a guy that worked for the Baptist. I believe he bought his underwear from the Baptist bookstore. He was so Baptist. But uh, so after we'd been there a week, he said, how's it going with you? And I said, well, I, it's great. I love these folk. I love the Baptist churches here. They're so responsive to the word. He said, have you found any doctrinal problems? And I said, well, no, not that I see. He said, I have. They don't have Sunday school before they worship. And I wanted to go call the heresy hunters. <laughs> the reason they don't is because they don't have the money to build all the cubby holes that we built. You know, you, can do, you have to do church differently in other places. And so they did the same ministries. They just didn't do it an hour before church. So the, the church is all over the world, and, and it's allowed to be different. But now, even when you sit here and say, I believe in the church, in Baptist life, you get into some controversy. There's a part of us, our Baptist past, and it still has some influence today. They're called the Landmark Movement Baptist. And they taught that there's no such thing as a universal church. There's only local churches. And so you can't sit here and talk about everybody who's saved as a member of the church. Now, there are times in the New Testament where the Bible refers to churches in the plural. Galatians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. Here's a region. I'm writing to all the churches in that it'd be like in a state here in, in the United States, to the churches in North Carolina. It was to the churches of Galatia. 
But there are times when, I, when it's, you can't read the scripture without thinking that it's referring to the one great church that all saved people are part of. It's church in the singular. Matthew 16, this is a wonderful passage. I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, not my churches, but my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So here we're taught that we're to believe in a holy, worldwide church that can be found all over the world. It doesn't necessarily look the same, that it has local expressions, but there's still one church. So here's the question, the first question I want to ask. I'm going to ask and answer several questions. Where is the true church today? And I've got a two-part answer to that question. The first answer is nowhere. There is no pure church. By the way, if you find a pure church, I plead with you, don't join it because you'll ruin it. So that, that's just a fact. The church is made up of fallible people. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, it says, Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be of God, from God and not from us. That if you look at any church long enough, you'll see treasure while God's moving. You'll also see clay. You look at any Christian long enough, you'll see treasure, but you'll also see clay. And I think there are a lot of people who the search for the perfect church has caused them not to be in any church. There was a, a, an author who was, who was well-respected in another generation called A.W. Pink. Uh, as a young Christian, somebody hand me some of his books. I finally got a hold of his biography because I'm a voracious biography readers, reader. And it turns out that he could, he did not get involved in a local church because he could not find a pure church. So he went to, I believe it was New Zealand, and he founded a church. So for the first time in all of church history, the church was going to be done right. And he founded a church so that it would be that pure church. Two years after he founded it, he quit it because it was now corrupt. And so he basically spent the rest of his life writing in his living room, with no involvement with other Christians because he was looking for that pure, perfect church. So where is the pure, true church today? Nowhere. But secondly, wait a minute. It's everywhere. Now that's where I need to chase the rabbit of the word holy. I believe in the holy Catholic church. Now usually when we think of holy, we think of somebody who is just sinless in character and all. I understand that. But the word holy, especially the Old Testament word for holy, means set apart. There were vessels that were in the temple and they were declared to be holy, which meant you could never take that cup and use it for your covered dish meal. That cup has now been set apart for God's use, so it can only be used by God. It simply meant set apart. And there's a sense in which all of us as the church are people who've been set apart for God. So... Since the church is everywhere and it's set apart by God, the next question is this. What is the best way to find out which is closest to what God wants in a church? And historically, there have been two answers to how you can find what is the closest churches to what is a, what God wants in a church. Number one, the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and even the Anglicans say, the way you can find the church that's closest to what it should be is trace something they call apostolic succession. 
If if you can go back and search his pastors all the way back to the beginning, you see it goes all the way to the apostles. Uh, Recently, King Charles was crowned by Justin Welby, and he is known as the 107th Archbishop of Canterbury because in 590, Pope Gregory the Great sent a missionary named Augustine, not the Augustine we often talk about, but a missionary. And he went there and his first church that he founded was in Canterbury and that became the headquarters to reach the rest of Britain for Christ. And so they've continually had a pastor for 107 pastors since 590. Well, I thought about that. 107 from 590 to today. That's pretty good, pretty good record, wouldn't you think? Uh, it doesn't look like they run. Uh, they don't run them off too often. So I went to our wall. Well, we've got every pastor from 1844. And from 1844, I am now the 27th or the 28th pastor, depending on whether or not you count me twice, (laughs) since 1844. So 27 since 1844, 107 since 590. Can we admit they're doing a little better than us? But what happened in the early days, by the way, this was a small church and people would stay for a couple of years because it was a, we would call it a bivocational church back in that day. Well, we believe the best way to find the true church is to go check the blueprint, which is the Bible. What church matches what we find in the Bible? Because the, the problem with this whole concept of Find a person who's been, you can trace it all the way back as a line. What happens if, say, in 590, somebody takes a wrong turn? Everybody after that is going to take the same wrong turn. Do you see that? So we believe the best thing is go to the scriptures and say, how can I, can I find a church that most matches what I find in the scripture? So that brings me to my next question. What should you find in a New Testament church? And here are several elements, four elements of a New Testament church. Number one. It should be a place where people gather in person. It should be a place where people gather in person. Now, I don't want to put guilt on people who can no longer physically gather. I saw a senior adult today, your mother, and she was telling me how she enjoys watching us on her computer and loves Justin as well as me. And I, I was just so blessed. And, and, and I understand she physically can't make it to church now. And that's her connection. And that's all God wants from it. That's all you can physically do. That's fine. But folks, the word church literally means an assembly. That's the reason why a denomination called the Assemblies of God took that word because the word ecclesia literally means assembly. It means you've gathered together. In Hebrews 10, 25, it says, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, where this is going to really play out in the future is as we are now making more and more opportunities available online, virtually, not long ago, they actually had, I think, 300 people listen to a virtual sermon. Uh, no, an AI sermon. Uh, there was an experiment on that. And they did that. That was their church listening to a pastor who's never lived. And, and so, uh, no, no, you, you gather together. So one characteristic you find in the New Testament, the church exists when people gather together, when two or three are gathered in my name. The second thing is you can find a New Testament church when you find preaching and singing. You can find a New Testament church when you find preaching and singing. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, 
in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. It's a place where the word of God just fills you up, where the word's being preached, and where you express your love for the Lord in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So you know you have found a New Testament church when you find a place where there is preaching and singing. The third thing that is an element of a New Testament church is a New Testament church is there when you find godly leaders. And you notice I use the phrase godly leaders. First Timothy 3 gives the characteristics of what should be in a pastor. And then later on the same chapter repeats almost identically the same characteristics for deacons. So the two leaders of the church are pastors and deacons. And what do you find when you read? And I've only given a sample tonight. First Timothy chapter three, verse two through three. An overseer, that's another term for pastor, therefore must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. Our Southern Baptist Convention has just been meeting and they have emphasized, I believe, what the First Timothy 3 says, that the qualifications for pastors are male qualifications. But we're making such a, a brouhaha over the fact that only men can be pastors. I heard somebody say, we've got a lot of, our problem is not the fact that we've got women pastors. There's so few of those. It's, it's almost, you can't even count them on two hands. The problem with Southern Baptist life is we have so many men that don't match this godly characteristic. They are brawlers. They are bullies. They are angry. They're not in control. And so what God says is, I want a, a church should have leaders, but the measure of a leader is that leader's character. And then the fourth thing that you should find in a New Testament church, and I'm using my own term here because as a church historian, I, I, I know how different terms are laced with different meanings. And so my fourth characteristic of a true New Testament church is the sacred symbols are practiced there. Now, that's a term I, I made up. You won't go look in a theology book and find sacred symbols under the S. Uh, you can find words like sacraments. Um, one of the reasons why Baptists have been uncomfortable with the word sacrament is it implies that there's something that actually happens in the water. There's something that actually happens in the cup and the bread. And what we believe is that they are symbols. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, so so I, I believe that one of the things that, that marks a true church is that they are practicing those two sacred symbols. Um, baptism is one of them. In Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 6, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. So the Bible says that in, in the church, there's only one baptism. Now, can we just be honest? There are different ways that baptism is being administered. Can I tell you something you might find interesting? One of the greatest tools for evangelism for those who've never heard the gospel has been the Jesus film. The man that developed it, Paul Eshelman, just recently died. But it has been dubbed and is constantly still being dubbed into languages. It is the gospel of Luke and every word in it comes from the gospel of Luke. Well, the Bible says that Jesus was baptized by John. 
Well, the baptism, I don't know why they did this. Maybe it's because they want to please the most people. They had Jesus walk into the Jordan River, and then John reached down, scooped up a bunch of water, and poured it on his head. So there are a lot of people that their first impression of Christianity, what brings them to Christ, is the Jesus film. So what we're finding is there are a lot of places where that's the, that has been the inroad for the gospel, that when they get baptized, they want to go find a river and have a preacher scoop up some water and then splash it on their head. The word baptizo, which is where we get our word baptized, means to dip, to immerse. But can't we just rejoice that somebody heard the gospel, got saved, stood in water, and had some water thrown on them? I mean, it may not be exactly right, but I rejoice that it happened because they used to be a Muslim, and now they're a Christian. They used to be an animist, and now they're a Christian. So, so there's still just one baptism. And then there's also confusion over the Lord's Supper. And the main confusion of the Lord's Supper is how often you should do it. The Catholic Church does it every single day. Uh, there's some churches that do it every Sunday. Some churches do it monthly. Some churches do it quarterly. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, Jesus, we, we are simply told in this scripture, as often as you do it. It didn't say how often. But it's a sacred symbol to remind us of the cross. So now, the next question, and I believe it's my last one. Yes, it is. What are God's purposes for the church? And let me share with you several things, four things that are the purposes of God for the church. Number one, the church exists to glorify God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And folks, I want to tell you something. I, I know that there are preachers who consider the music to be, quote, the preliminaries before the main event, which is the preaching. But I believe that the praise that happens in the worship service is, call it main event, because we're here to offer the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his light. Folks, I want to tell you something. I am moved in both places by the worship that's going on here. I get emotional. It, it, it just thrills me to know that God is being praised. And I'm so glad that we have such enthusiasm in that worship nowadays. Now, I grew up in the day and time. This is back in those early days when I wasn't a fan of the church where I believe that we Baptists practice what I call the holy mumble. Uh, it was almost like, don't get too enthusiastic. If you really let it go, you could become Pentecostal. So just, just kind of mumble through it, get through it, don't show emotion. And, and that was really the, 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 the impression I got from some of the leaders. I had uh, in one of my churches, a good church, I had a deacon and his wife, and, and they were the high muckety-mucks of the town. Uh, she kept talking. It was, this was in Georgia, and she'd tell me about going over to Rosalind's house and what Rosalind fixed for them. You know, Jimmy and Carter and Rosalind. I mean, was, that was the kind of folks they were. And they wanted the church to be done with decorum and elegance. And then, Jim, they invited me to a Georgia Tech game. He was a Georgia Tech fan. And this woman, who always dressed elegantly, had a yellow jacket so big, I was afraid it was going to scratch her chin. And she put it on there. And I've never heard so much yelling in the stands as from my deacon who believed in decorum. 
But that's all right. That's a fan. But on Sunday morning, you get emotional. That's a fanatic. No, we're here to give him praise, to offer the praises of the one who brought us out of darkness into light. Number two, why is the church here? What is God's purpose for the church? The church is here to be the body of Christ on earth today. There's so many, I could have used 1 Corinthians 12, but instead I'm going to use Ephesians 1 because it's shorter. Verse 22 and 23, he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Now, there's so many things we could take as meaning of being the body of Christ. But can I just say this? I think what that means is when people come, when a lost person comes into our church, they ought to look around and say, that's what Jesus must have looked like. That we're the Jesus they see. And I think that's one of the purposes of the church, that we would be Jesus to our generation. A third reason why the church exists, it exists to equip the saved. In Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. God says, I'm giving you leaders, but they're supposed to be training you to go do the ministry. The church is not just a mission station, it's a training station to put people out into the mission field. And so God says, this is what I want to happen in a church. But lastly, Fourth purpose of the church is to provide believers with a warm family here. In 1 Timothy 3.15, this is beautiful word pictures. But if I should be delayed, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the church. God's household is the church. Todd Unzicker is our executive director for North Carolina He wrote a great article getting us ready to go to the convention because we are a democracy and the mic is open and the nuts show up because it's an open mic. And he said, this is the way you ought to look at the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention is a family reunion, but we do have some crazy uncles. And I think that's the way you look at any church. We're a family reunion, but we do have occasionally crazy uncles. Just got to understand that. But God meant us to be God's family. Back in the 1980s, I had a couple that we were close to, and I was surprised. He told her he wasn't happy, wanted a divorce. She fought for a marriage. She got the best lawyer, and he took everything. She was in her 40s with two kids that were teenagers and lost the house. And I mean, she was fighting for a marriage. He fought for the stuff. So she had no choice but in her 40s going back to her hometown of Macon, Georgia to go live with her parents. Thank God her parents were alive or they'd been homeless. But she took her kids there. The first Sunday, she went to the church she had grown up in many years ago. Hadn't been there 20-something years. Came in hurting. I mean, can you imagine? If you've gone through that and now you've had the the humiliating process of going back to your home to pick up up the pieces of your life, find a job, go, go on. And she said she, they put her in a co-ed class, which was everybody was married. But, but it, that wasn't the only thing that we heard about that class is that what they did was they all talked around her during Sunday school. They'd had a fellowship the night before, and they were talking about how much fun they had. And they literally moved around her to talk, and no one spoke to her. Then she went out to the sanctuary to wait for her parents to come out of her, their Sunday school class, and she sat there, and everybody was making a beeline to their friends. 
And she said, I wanted to stand up and cry out, I'm hurting, does anyone in this room care? But she didn't do that. But folks, I think one of the purposes of the church should be that we are the family that ought to be saying to people, we care. Keep your eyes open. Look for those who are hurting. Well, I hope this has been a blessing to you. Uh, We're going to take a couple of weeks off before we return to the subject, but the next one will be on the fellowship of the saints. We're going to talk about how to strengthen the fellowship between Christians when we get to the next phrase. Thank you for listening.